Good morning. Joy to be before you today. My name is Doug Hart. Um, I know most of you, but if uh, you weren't with us during the days of our sojourn at North Cross School, uh, you won't remember that I was the associate pastor for a number of years and then interim pastor, so it's a joy to be back now that I'm, I don't prefer the, retur- the term retired, I like recycled. <laughs> but uh, it's a joy to open God's word with you today and to worship together as um, sort of the last man standing with the quarantine. So um, today, I want to speak to you from a part of scripture that our Lord speaks very directly to us. And I, I want to encourage you that it speaks to our sense of belonging. Belonging defines our lives. If I listen to your story or you listen to mine, you'll tell me about all the places and the people with which you have belonged or belong, starting with your family, your parents, your school, your hometown, your home. And it may expand to teams and clubs and associations and jobs and careers and places, but each of our whole lives really could be defined as a, as a search for belonging. And while we have, many of us, many wonderful memories about belonging in this world, We also have many disappointments, and those we all remember very clearly, every door that was closed, every relationship that was broken, everything that we loved that became impermanent and temporary, and we can't go back to it. And as we look at our scripture for today, we're going to hear from the one who says he has the power to open the door and invites us into a place of his belonging with him. So will you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. As you're turning there, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we pray that today... As we open your word, we would be given thankful hearts that you have spoken to us clearly in your word. You have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed yourself in your life and death and resurrection and ascension. And we pray that we would hear from you today, each one that's here. Lord, you know the word that they need to hear from you how the Holy Spirit needs to apply it, and we pray that you would speak to each of our hearts, that we might go forward into this week and into this coming year in greater faith in you, in greater confidence in what you have done for us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Revelation chapter 3. We're going to focus on verse 7 today, but we'll read this entire letter It's one of seven letters, as you probably know, that Jesus revealed to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, um, a beautiful little island in the the Adriatic Sea there, um, not a very uh, spectacular place, a lonely place where he was in exile. 
but where Jesus came to him and revealed to him the message to the churches, the churches of Asia Minor, of which one John had been the pastor of, the church in Ephesus. And so as Jesus speaks now as the resurrected and ascended Christ from the very throne room of God, he speaks to his churches. And so for that reason, Christ the King, as Christ the King Church, though we're not in Philadelphia, we're here. We too live in this time between the comings. And we too have a resurrected Savior and Lord who speaks to his church. And so we expect to hear from him. Let's begin with verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. It's a joy to hear this word together. We want to focus today on what it means that Jesus says, I have the keys of David. What does that mean? Well, keys and doors, we, we get that illustration pretty readily. Um, if you've ever been locked out, you understand what it is to have a door shut <laughs> and what it means to look for the key. Um, that's a frequent experience, isn't it, in our lives? But Jesus is connecting, even as the resurrected, ascended Son of God now, in the very throne room of God, he's saying, I have the key of David. Why would it be important for him, as we connect our whole year and series on the theme of Jesus as David's greater son, why does he keep on using this picture of David and his relationship to David? And it really continues on to the last paragraph of the book of Revelation. But today we get to chance to sum that up and, and to see what difference does that make to us that Jesus is the son of David? Does it make a difference? And kind of a bigger question is, 
Why does, why does Jesus reveal himself this way? Why doesn't he just describe himself the way he really is in, in some graphic format? Or why doesn't he reveal himself in some other format than constantly connecting himself to an ancient covenant of a thousand years before and a family line and a nation and all these things? And why do we get this? Well... Part of the reason is that the Lord knows our weakness, how hard it is for us to comprehend who he is. And the, the entire Old Testament is really like an architectural model. You know, when an architect is going to make a, a great building, now that they have 3D CAD, I don't know that they do this, but you can think of it as a 3D CAD model instead of a balsa wood model the way they used to make the model of a building before they built it, so that you could see the structure and you could envision what was going to be there and you could imagine what it's going to be like. That's what the Old Testament is to us. It's God's gracious working model of what the kingdom of God is ultimately going to be like. And without that, we would be pretty lost because we wouldn't be able to grasp it. It's said that when the natives who... Uh, first greeted Christopher Columbus in the New World, they failed to see, they failed to even remember that he arrived on sailing ships. Even though those ships were visible to them, they had no concept of sailing ship. And so though they might have seen them, they so little comprehended it that it made no difference to them. It didn't, they didn't really even notice. And so Jesus knows that we are but dust, and we are finite. And so he gives us these live working models in the Old Testament of, so that we can understand him. And one of the primary ones that we've been seeing is this theme of the house of David, the lineage of David, the kingship of David, the throne of David. And you see there's this increasing, well, we could go back before that, really, couldn't we? If we want to talk about belonging, why, why is it that we all have this sense like David had when he said, Lord, I want to build a house. I want to build a house for you right here in Jerusalem. And I want you nearby. And I want to dwell close to you. Remember what God said there in 2 Samuel 7. Kenny preached on it a few weeks ago. He goes, I didn't ask you to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house. And I'm going to build it through a son of yours. And I'm going to dwell there. And you see, that longing for a home goes way back. Ecclesiastes, it says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. We long for that. We long to belong to something that's far more than what we could ever have here. And that began really in Genesis 3, didn't it? Because Adam and Eve had a home that God had created for them, a beautiful home, a garden home, a temple home where he was dwelling with them and they ruled under his authority and had dominion over the earth and they were to protect the garden and tend it. And they were to work God's work with him and they were to think God's thoughts after him and they were to know the joy and the fellowship and the love of the Father. Of course, we know they, got, they, they failed the test that was given. 
though eternity was held out in front of them, they failed and they were banished. And the door, so to speak, was closed to the garden behind them, slammed shut. And angels with flaming swords of judgment said, if you come back, if you try to get back home into the presence of God, you'll be struck dead. And so the whole of the Old Testament really is a story of how could we get back home? Is it possible? Could you sneak in? Could, you, could someone go for us and find out? Could someone stand before the presence of God, some man? And that's where David comes in and God says, you're a man after my own heart. I've made you king over my people, this live working model. But I'm going to give you a son that's going to be greater than you. And so we start reading the Old Testament in, in, in expectation, and instead we only get disappointment. And he sinned after the sins of his father. The descendants of David are listed over and over again, Kings and Chronicles. And he died, and he was buried with his fathers, the kings of Israel, kings of Judah. And he died, and he died, and we get tired of hearing of failure, a record of greater and greater failure and disobedience. And the Old Testament has this decline, doesn't it? At the same time, God sends prophets not only to chronicle and to prosecute the law of God and, and to remind them of the judgment that they're bringing on not only themselves but all God's people and the exile that's to come, but he also begins to describe in greater and greater and greater terms the extent of the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom, the wonder of the kingdom, the joy of the kingdom, the permanence of the kingdom that's to come. And God's still going to do it, and his promise is still true. And yet, who's going to be the one, the son of David, who could, who could lead and who could lead us into that place? And that's why the, the temple is such a, a rich picture, the temple and the tabernacle, of, of this story. Because, you know, the interesting thing is it's not like a church. A church is a place with lots of doors where people can come in, right? But the tabernacle and the temple, you could get in the outer courtyard if you were a believing male Jew, circumcised, etc., keeper of the law. You could pass through, bring a sacrifice, and be able to stand in the courtyard. But you couldn't go into the temple. Only the priest could go into the holy place to do certain things at certain times, covered by the blood of Christ, the blood of the sacrifice. And only the high priest, once a year, into the holy place. The door was shut for most. You couldn't go into the presence. You couldn't go back to the garden yet. You couldn't go into the holy place of God until that son of David would come, who would be as Jesus describes himself in verse 7, I am the holy one. I'm the son of David who is holy as God is holy. As Isaiah saw God and the seraphim cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is that holy one, truly God, he's saying. And he also describes himself, I am the true one. I am the true one. There is no falsehood. Every prophecy of the Old Testament has come true in Christ. They are all amen and yes in him. 
It has all come true in him. And now as the son of David, he is, a, he is now a risen human being, the representative, the true son of David, the first man who can enter into the very throne room of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. This door is described as a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven, one seated on the throne. And it describes Jesus. And the door is open now. And Jesus describes that in terms of I have the key of David. That goes back to Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 25, when Hezekiah appointed a doorkeeper. He appointed a steward of all his house. And that man's job, his name was Shebna. And Shebna was given the authority second only to the great king himself. And his job was to open the door to some people and shut the door to other people. And his word was final. There was no appeal. If you wanted in to see the king, you had to come through Shebna. And he would decide whether you would go in or not. So his authority was great. You imagine how, li how your life would be controlled. If you ever had a servant, <laughs> if you ever hired someone and you said to them, your job is to uh, stand at the front door of my house and whoever you decide to let in is fine, and whoever you decide to keep out, that's fine too. Well, that person would, you would never give away that authority because that person would pretty soon be running your life. All their friends would be over, hanging out. Your friends might not be. But Shebna's given that authority, and, and in verse uh, 20, 19, uh, Shebna had what's theologically known as, the theological term for it is, he got the big head. And God says, you're abusing your power and I'm taking it from you and giving it to my servant, Eliakim. And Eliakim is given that power. And it's described, this is what's alluded to in Jesus actually alludes to this earlier revelation. It says, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do you hear that language, the father? He's supposed to be like a father who opens the door, the everlasting father. That's his job to prefigure and I will place on his shoulder what does that mean that's the place of responsibility that's the place where a responsibility is given the government will be upon his shoulder Isaiah chapter 9 same language the key I will place on his shoulder what the key of the house of David and he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open so in trying to explain to us the glory of the re his resurrected office, his ascended office at the right hand of God, Jesus reaches back and he says, I have the key of David. All that was promised there now is fulfilled in me. And we can kind of see David saying, Lord, 
You are in the very throne room of God himself. Why mention my name? But you see, in that promise that was made to David, all the doing of it was included. Because God is a true one. When he makes a promise, it's not like the promises that you make or or someone else makes. When God speaks the word that he's going to do something, it's already, in a sense, certain in every way that it's going to be done. When Jesus says, now it's fulfilled and I have opened the door and I shut the door. I am the one who bears the key of David. Now that is a little bit scary, isn't it? It's not up to us. It's not up to us to decide who comes in to the very household of God. It's Jesus. But who else could we trust with that responsibility? And he stands, sends me to stand before you today and remind you of this truth that we have a responsibility to, to hear and to see and to respond in faith and obedience and trust because he is the true one. And those who receive him by faith, who come through that door, I am the door, I am the way, he said. He will in no wise cast out. Just a few minutes we have, we want to look at some of the application of this in the life of the church. What? Okay, we get it. This is who Jesus is now as ascended Lord, having the key, key of David. What does that mean for us, though? Well, we can, we can learn from the church in Philadelphia. As he does in all the letters, he says, I know, I know you. I know you. I know you. I know your works. And he expands the metaphor a little bit. And he says, I've set before you an open door. An open door here is often used in the New Testament to describe a, a door of purpose, a door of mission, a door that, of opportunity for service. And he reminds his church, even you, little church in Philadelphia, you don't have much power. You don't have influence in the culture. In fact, the culture, the Roman culture, ignores you or despises you. The Jews in the synagogues hate you, but you have a purpose. And you have but a little power, but you have kept my word and not denied by name. That's our job, isn't it? That's our calling. That's our purpose. Keep his word. See the opportunity for mission. See the opportunity to carry out his purpose. Do not deny his name. And he says, behold, I, I make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I make them come and bow down before your feet that they will learn what I, that I have loved you. You see, this church knew the pain of rejection of a door slammed in their face. The door of the synagogue had been closed to them. The only place, the only house of worship in the whole area of Philadelphia was the synagogue, and that was the natural place for believers to go to hear the word and to hear that wonderful promises. But the door had been slammed shut by people who were not really, truly Jews at all, Jesus says. 
But the, the text here is very interesting because the language that's used there is the language of worship. I will come and I will make them come and bow down before you or beside you or at your feet. As you bow down and worship, they will bow down too. And so I believe there's a promise of, of, of success in, in their mission. As they're faithful, even some of the Jews, their enemies, those who had despised them, would come and worship Jesus with them. So for us, as Christ the King, we have opportunities, great opportunities, even though we are of little power and little influence, Jesus promises us purpose and fruitfulness. Next, he promises protection. Protection. He says, look, you've kept my word, verse 10, about patient endurance, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, we don't escape the persecution of this world or the ups and downs of life or the difficulties that we must endure with patient endurance. But Jesus is saying, because I have the key of David, because you belong to me, nothing will ever happen to you that is judgment upon you. I will never destroy you in judgment. I will never tear you down. I will only build you up. I will protect you. Even your suffering will soften you and make you grow. Whereas those who are unbelievers, they're described here as people who dwell on the earth. Their citizenship, so to speak, is on the earth. They're looking for their belonging and all that they want in the things of this earth. And he said, for them, judgment will come, but not on you. I am coming soon in every trial and every difficulty. What a promise Jesus says, I am coming soon. Have you ever known that yourself? Where you've been in difficulty and you say, Jesus, I need you now. He's never too late, is he? He's not on our time always, but he's never too late. I am coming soon is his promise. This is not his second coming that he's talking about here. He's, I'm coming to you to be your help, to help you hold fast what you have so that no one can seize your crown. There's a, there's a promise of perseverance. God is going to, Jesus as the risen Savior is going to give us and is giving us and giving you perseverance in difficulty. And you already have. I love this picture here. He says, don't let anybody take the crown from you. You see that? That means we already have the crown in a sense. We're not just looking forward to it. Yes, it will be fully revealed and fully enjoyed someday, but the crown is ours. There will also be what we lack in the things of this world and we lack in belonging of anything here is there'll be a new permanence. There'll, there is permanence in heaven. Jesus says, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes in faith, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Can you, can you grasp this? The, the risen Savior in the very throne room of God in heaven is saying, I'll make you a pillar. There's a place for you, a permanent place there, 
for you, a place where I never forget you, a place for you to abide forever. It won't be taken away. The city of Philadelphia had endured lots of earthquakes, and it's thought at this time people had fled the city to not have it fall on them. They were living out in tents. So the idea of a permanent pillar would have been very dear to them and can be to us as we think about what it means that Jesus is there and we are in him, so we are there permanently in heaven. And lastly, Jesus says, I'm going to make you a new person. You're a new person because I'm here. And I've invited you into my family, into my home, into the very throne room of God with me. Because I am here, you will be also. And you are now going to have a new name. You have, as a believer, a new name. There's no higher title in this world than Christian. There's no greater honor, no greater suffix to your name that could be given than Christian. The name of Christ is given to you. And it's not just temporary, it's written on you. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. Once again, the new Jerusalem, the city of David, the city where David conquered, and now Christ has conquered for us. Now, as we think about this word, the final word in each of these letters is the same. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each time the gospel story is told or preached, even today in faithful churches, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Change the metaphor a little bit. He says, what you bind on earth will be bound, and what you loose will be loosed. The keys, Jesus said in chapter 1 of Revelation, of I have the keys of death and Hades. I hold them in my hand. I control all of that. He who has ears to hear, let him hear with faith. Let him believe the true one who has told the truth about who he is and who he calls you to be and who we are in him today. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are awed today to think that you, though in heaven at the very throne of God, remember us and even intercede constantly for us in prayer. And we ask you to pray for us that we might truly have ears of faith to hear you, to believe you and to trust you and to walk out of here into the newness of this week and the newness of this year and everything that's unknown to us but known to you to trust all your promises, to trust in your presence, to trust in your love, in the perseverance that you will work in us through your spirit and the word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.